Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Woman in Compliance podcast on the Compliance Podcast Network. I'm Mary Shirley, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Gwen Hassan. Gwen, please could you give us an introduction about your background? Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Mary. I'm happy to be here. Honored to be included in this podcast. I listened to it myself. So that's great. I am Gwen Hassan. I am the managing counsel for global compliance for CNH Industrial. In that role, I run the compliance program globally. We are in 190-ish countries with 70,000 employees. And last year, we were about a $30 billion business. So it's an extensive program. Prior to joining CNH, I've worked for a series of different manufacturing companies in different compliance roles. And interestingly, part of the role I have now is I also serve as trade compliance counsel for the company, which I really enjoy. Great. Thanks so much for that. And speaking of trade compliance, it was on that very topic that I saw Gwen speaking at the 2018 SCCE conference. And it was a three-hour afternoon session. And I have to admit that going into the session, I was quite dubious that someone (laughs) could capture the attention of the audience for the full three hours. But you absolutely knocked it out of the park. And that's why I really wanted to have you on the podcast because this is something not only are you super strong at, but that you make it really interesting and engaging as well. Well, thank you very much. It, it can be a really dry kind of esoteric topic. Um, so I do my best to make sure that it's <laughs> engaging and, and interesting for people because it touches really everyone who moves goods across any kind of country border. They have to know something about trade compliance. So That's right. And I think for a lot of us, it's, it's an area where we're a little bit shaky in compliance. So there are many people with a really strong core anti-corruption background, some of us with pretty good antitrust and data privacy subject matter expertise areas. But when you ask about trade sanctions, trade compliance, I think a lot of people feel like it's not their area of strength. And so I thought it would be awesome to have more of a substantive section of the podcast episode on that today. Great. I know that you were a trade compliance expert for some time, specializing in that area. For those of us who don't focus on it as part of our core duties, but we're conscious that we need to learn more about it, what do you recommend as the best way to ensure that we stay abreast of trade compliance issues? Well, so trade compliance can really be divided down into three categories in my view. There's the import side, all you need to know about bringing products in to whatever country you're in. The export side, obviously the flip of that, everything you need to know about how to move product out or sell it across Mm -hmm. your country's borders. But then there's kind of this separate third category that really relates to trade as a political tool. And in that category falls things like boycotts and sanctions and denied parties. And that applies whether you're importing or exporting and kind of serves as an umbrella under which the rest of the trade regulations fall. So when I speak to people who are new 
to trade compliance. As a matter of fact, I have a couple of people on my staff now who are kind of apprenticing in this area. We always start with the trade sanctions side because trade sanctions apply universally regardless of which side of the exchange you're on, whether you're bringing in or sending out, and it's a good place to start. And in that kind of category, it also has a lot of very easy to find law because all trade sanctions are regulatory, which or the subject of executive orders, which are easy to look up and easy to find, which can be helpful because a lot of your the customs regulations for a smaller country in Africa, not going to be so easy to find or look up. So (laughs) sanctions are a good entry level, a good place to start. Excellent. That's great. And I know that you've got some publications that you recommend as well in terms of being able to keep up with blogs and so on. Do you have any of those at hand to share with the audience? Sure. I'm a member of not only SCCE, but also the American Bar Association, and they publish annually a publication called The International Lawyer. And within that publication, there is a year-end review section that covers both import and export and sanction compliance updates and provides kind of an overview of everything that's happened in trade. There's also a number of really good blogs and law firm websites. I am a religious reader of Baker and McKenzie's site. They have a monthly trade summary report that they put together and publish on their website. And it has around the globe updates of all the different trade regulations that have changed or been passed or added or revoked within the last month. And it's a great source of being able to keep up to date on this area. That's great advice. Thank you for the suggestions. And what are the current trends that you're observing in trade compliance that we should be aware of right now? Oh, there's so many. I'm not even sure where to start. Let's see. Probably the biggest one that affects everyone right now is what I'll refer to as the trade war. Because the use of tariffs and duties has become so integral to kind of political positioning within the world today. There are so many different sets of duties and counter duties and tariffs and counter tariffs that it's becoming kind of increasingly vital for companies not only to know which ones their goods are subject to, but to look from a supply chain basis at where they're buying things from. Where are their supplies and materials and raw materials coming in from which countries and are they likely to be subject to tariffs or duties? Because there have been a number of examples, but preliminarily, you can think of, say, someone who uses a lot of aluminum in their business. That industry went from having a certain cost basis one month to a month later having a cost basis that was 25% higher. So it really impacts your business and how your business is going to be able to function and the margins they're going to be able to make. So that's a huge trend is the increasing Mm -hmm. use of duties and tariffs, number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, I'd say there's an interesting kind of alignment between technology and trade right now. Mm -hmm. With the advent of blockchain technology, which I know when everyone hears blockchain, they immediately think cryptocurrency. 
but it's not just that. There's more. Blockchain itself presents a lot of really interesting opportunities when it comes to trade. So, for example, right now in a trade transaction, people deal with literal letters of credit, paper letters or electronic letters of credit that detail out limitations and conditions and rules. There are a number of jurisdictions, most notably in the Far East, that are doing away with written letters of credit in trade and instead are using blockchain to kind of self-authenticate transactions. And the blockchain serves almost as a certificate of origin and a free trade agreement qualifier and track and trace of the monetary conditions of a trade. So that's going to be a real emerging issue too, is the increasing kind of use of technology in trade and the implications that it's going to have on compliance. That's interesting. Wonderful. So thank you so much for those. And you've given me a little heads up that there's potentially a looming trade war. Can you give us some more information about that? Absolutely. Well, there already is one, as certainly as China is concerned. Um, we, the United States, has imposed a series of different escalating sets of duties. The duties right now, most of them are at a 25% rate, and they apply to thousands of different products coming from China. Of course, in retaliation for that, China has imposed their own tariffs against U.S. goods. For example, because I'm in the Midwest and I work for a company that makes farming equipment, I'll point out the example of soybeans, which is China has historically been one of the largest purchasers of U.S. grown soybeans. In As part of the trade war, they imposed a tariff on U.S. soybeans. So there are now, unfortunately, farmers across the U.S. and for that matter, Canada as well, who have literal stockpiles, silos full of soybeans that they cannot sell. And that means that they cannot sell their goods, so they don't have income, so they can't buy farming equipment. So it really has a domino effect on industry in general. So that already exists in the place of China. What I'm watching carefully now and is of significant potential concern for our company is that Just last week, the administration announced via a series of kind of informal tweets and conversations that they were contemplating imposing $11 billion package of duties against goods from the European Union. The kind of source of this conflict dates back a long time to essentially Airbus and Boeing. Mm Mm-hmm. The European Union has, for many years, provided subsidies to Airbus, and the U.S. filed an action in the World Trade Organization saying that those subsidies were unfair to the U.S. and specifically to Boeing. And in the meantime, Boeing, of course, has now been facing the issues with their 737 MAX aircraft being grounded mm-hmm. and having difficulties you know, recovering from that. And so the U.S. administration has kind of taken up the charge and is saying, hey, World Trade Organization, we believe that these subsidies are still happening and they're still unfair and you're disadvantaging U.S. business. So as long as that's going to continue, then we're going to pass this package of retaliatory tariffs against the European Union. And there's 
no definitive list that's been published yet, but it's rumored to include, you know, wine and cheese and and all kinds of things that I I love. So I'm watching carefully, especially as a multinational company, because as you might expect, we not only purchase things from Europe, but we also sell things to Europe. And we manufacture portions of equipment in Europe and then ship them other places to be completed. We ship you know, partially completed goods to Europe to be completed. So the potential cost impact internally for how we conduct business is huge. So I'm afraid the trade war continues and is looking, if anything, like it might expand. So it's something that's going to have to be monitored carefully over the coming months for sure. Well, thank you for that insight. That was really interesting. And I was on top of the US-China one not probably to the same extent as you, but certainly aware that that's been ongoing. Tit for tat has been occurring for some time now and looks like we're going to see some of that start to bubble up with Europe as well. So certainly one to keep an eye on. Yeah, I'd also say it's interesting because the trade war that's been going on with China for a while, and I don't have empirical numbers to back this up, more of a hunch, more of a feeling, from the people that I talk to, I've become aware of a number, you know, three or four different U.S. manufacturers who have operations in China, who since the trade war started, since the you know, 25% tariff on Chinese aluminum was first put in place, have been the unhappy recipients of dawn raid visits by Chinese officials. So there is kind of an anecdotal evidence out there that China may be adding some additional kind of regulatory attention to U.S. companies in retaliation for the trade war. I'm aware of at least one company who got a Dawn Raid visit from customs officials in China, another one who got a kind of a preliminary shot across the bow for an anti-bribery, anti-corruption issue. I haven't heard of any that are in the antitrust area, but that seems also a likely candidate. So it'll be interesting to watch and see whether this is just a fluke or whether there is some kind of a sustained effort on behalf of Chinese officials to put U.S. companies in China under additional scrutiny as kind of a way of turning the screws, if you will. Yeah, that one's really interesting. And um, as the US-China trade war was starting to heat up, I know that connections out in Asia were concerned that there was a chance that China could start using the anti-bribery and corruption law locally as a way to target United States companies or companies with US connections. And that may seem a little far-fetched, but interestingly, sort of around three to four years ago, there was concern by foreign multinationals that China was disproportionately targeting foreign companies with the anti-bribery and corruption law. And it wasn't sort of black and white to the extent that China wasn't going after any local companies. But I think I could see why the argument could be made. And so with this trade war heating up between the US and China, I think there was some concern that the anti-bribery law could be used as a different form of weaponry for China, provided mm-hmm. that the tit-for-tat on the trade sanctions side wasn't terribly satisfying or impactful, 
why don't we try to do things a different way? So really interesting to see how the trade wars, trade sanctions and the anti-bribery, antitrust can all fall together. And so the argument previously was that if China was disproportionately going after foreign companies, that would give local companies in China an extra leg up and therefore was sort of an antitrust issue. Kind of a way of evening out the playing field, if you will. Exactly. And then I think the question then becomes, well, if we're utilizing all of these sort of regulatory and compliance weaponry for this ever broadening war, when will it ever end? And how are we going to come to some kind of settlement? There's at least a glimmer of hope on the Mm -hmm. horizon, which is that U.S. officials and Chinese officials have been meeting. They've been meeting for many months and they're... So far, we don't have any inclination that things have been solved, but there are ongoing negotiations to try and reach some kind of an agreement that would at least call a ceasefire to the Chinese side of the trade war. So fingers crossed that these talks will eventually result in some kind of a go-forward agreement with concessions on both sides so that both parties feel like they've gotten their pound of flesh, as it were, out of the negotiations. So Stay tuned, but there's at least hope that they may end on the Chinese side at some point. Well, that's an optimistic note to end that section on. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Sure. Gwen, what does a best practice trade compliance program look like to you? Well, that depends a lot on the company. I will say clearly the three areas I mentioned before all need to be covered. So you've got to have a program that addresses import risk and compliance. And that will involve undoubtedly having at least one or more persons either in your employ or hired as consultants or contractors or service providers who are customs brokers, people who are licensed to conduct transactions through the import into the United States. But then you also, of course, have to have an export side of your program, aware of all the different regulations that apply There's a number of different licensing requirements depending on the goods or services that you are providing. So those all have to be managed as well. And then, as I mentioned before, that kind of third prong of trade compliance, to have a really solid program, you have to have a handle on your sanctions. Do you do business in countries that are sanctioned? Do you do business with individuals who might be on a denied party or a restricted party list? Do you have a system? for screening to make sure you're not violating sanctions or restrictions of any kind. I think ever since the Panama Papers came out, we've realized especially the importance of knowing who you're doing business with. And the concept within that of beneficial ownership has become increasingly important because you can have you know, four or five shell companies that are holding or constituting a certain percentage of a transaction If you don't know who owns them, you don't know who you're doing business with and your risk of a sanctions violation or some kind of a restriction, trade restriction violation just raises exponentially. So I think a solid program covers all three of those prongs of trade compliance. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. When a few years ago you were promoted to a global compliance position, what are your tips for those wanting to move from a local or regional position into a role with wider jurisdictional scope and compliance? That's a great question. So it's been not even, I guess, almost exactly three years since I moved into a global role. 
And I'm going to be the first one to admit I was a little naive in my in my belief that <laughs> that it was going to be a piece of cake. Um, <laughs> I've now come to realize that, in fact, the global role is not just a shift. It is, as compared to a regional role, it, it really is biting the whole apple at one time. It's a lot. I would say my biggest tips are if you want to move into that global role, First of all, get as much experience as you can on global projects. Volunteer. Raise your hand. When there's an opportunity for you to work on a project that either spans multiple regions, is involving a region that you're not currently working in, or is a global project, you should be the first one there with your hand up saying, you know, ooh, ooh, me, Mr. Cotter, I would like to volunteer. (laughs) I would also say... Cultural and or language skills are very important if you're going to be in a global role. I am, I'm lucky enough that I speak a few languages, but I've learned some, you know, recently over the last few wow. years because I have staff in countries that I didn't have the language capability for. So I took some classes. I got myself some, you know, books on tape and listened in my car. I've done everything I can to pick up some language skills Now, am I able to practice law in Portuguese right now? No, but can I introduce myself, wish someone a nice day and order from a restaurant and be polite in Portuguese? Yes. So anytime you're moving into a global role, any amount of cultural awareness and even basic language skills will hold you in really good stead. That's great advice and very impressive. What has been the biggest challenge in a role with global oversight and how do you address it? The biggest challenge for me has been that cultural challenge. And I consider myself to be a pretty culturally adept and Mm -hmm. culturally intelligent person. But it's easy to underestimate the impact of culture on a global team. I'll give you a couple of examples. So my team, I have people in Europe and South America and Asia and India, just all over, and also here in the United States. We had an issue come up in one region where I was suggesting that the appropriate course of action was to have one of the members of the team go in and run an investigation of a situation that we had with somebody else within the organization. The person in that role came back to me and explained, well, I would be happy to do that investigation, but I don't think it would go over well. I said, what do you mean? I'm confused. And this was a woman and she explained to me, well, the person who's allegedly, you know, been involved in this wrongdoing is a male and he's in a senior role, senior to me, and I am a woman. And if I come forward and try to investigate him, I will get nowhere because I don't have the political capital necessary to run an investigation in this country as a woman in my position. And that was so shocking to me at the time because I'm, you know, I'm American and I'm very used to kind of the idea of an empowered woman and women and men should be equal. And, and it wasn't that she was saying, I don't want to, or I can't, or I'm uncomfortable. She was saying, literally in my culture, it is not possible for me to do this. Mm. So that has been the biggest challenge for me is learning not only to accept the cultural differences, but then to find a way to work within them and still get to the same place that I wanted to get to. 
It requires some creativity and some real strategy, but it's a challenge I enjoy a lot. That's great and great example. Thank you so much for sharing that. Uh, Gwen, you're a big fan of um, relationship building with your stakeholders. What is your recipe for cultivating those relationships, especially when many of your internal clients may not be based in the same city as you? And you've already mentioned different continents as well. There is no excuse in my view, and excuse might not be the right word, no replacement for, no substitute for good old-fashioned frequent flyer miles. You've got to be face-to-face with someone. It is so vitally important, especially in a number of cultures. I mean, the American style of pick up the phone and chat with someone and we're instantly best friends is not very common in many other parts of the world. And Mm -hmm. There's kind of an initial sense of, I don't know you, and I'm going to tell you whatever I think you want to hear because I don't have any trust relationship with you, so I can't be completely honest or transparent with you, so you're going to get a lot of platitudes from me, and I'll always sound like I agree, but when we hang up the phone or I sign off on my email, I'm going to do whatever I was going to do anyway. So until you can meet someone face-to-face, I highly recommend breaking bread with someone, sitting down to a meal, finding out about their family, asking about, you know, where they grew up, finding out what their pastimes are, the things that they're passionate about outside of work. Until you can establish that kind of trust relationship with someone, it's going to be really hard to have a good work relationship with them, especially from afar. I'm a big fan of any FaceTime you can get. And if travel isn't an option, then invest in a good Skype app of some kind so that you can at least see people's facial reactions and you can teleconference and you can do something more than just email or talk on the phone. That's interesting. And I might be able to provide some context around what you've described. So I come from New Zealand, which is a Western country, much like the United States. But one of the big differences I have found between living in the United States and living in New Zealand is that Americans are so professional at small talk. And so I sort of have that feeling that you were describing of, you know, if we engage in a round of small talk, I don't feel like I've, you know, established any trust or that we're now best friends. I mean, in fact, it's actually kind of awkward for me as an introvert and someone who's very shy to be in that type of conversation. So I use the phone in a different way for compliance, which is basically to call people so that they can hear my tone and not sound like an angry rhino rampaging at <sighs> probably sound a lot of the time via email. And I would love to put smiley faces left, right and center in my emails to try and coax out that, um, that better attitude as well. But it's not professional really. So I go for the phone for that reason. But I don't know if that adds a little bit of color for you as to why the, you know, the picking up the phone and being instantly best friends, even from another Western country, why that may not be so effective. Absolutely. I attended a kind of a cultural intelligence class a few years Mm -hmm. ago that was held at the company I was working for then. And they had a really interesting kind of case study. It was real short. It was, Mm -hmm. if you were driving in a car with your best friend and your best friend ran a light and, you know, hit another car and then left the scene, no one was, you know, seriously injured, but they didn't stop and give them their information or anything. And let's say a week later, the police came to your door and said, hey, we understand you were in this car. We'd like you to give a statement, please, about what your friend did or did not do when driving. 
in the U.S., the majority of the people will respond and say, oh, well, I would tell the police the truth. I would tell them exactly what happened because, you know, law is important. And if I lie, I could get in trouble and the police are there. So I'm going to be very, very honest with them. You ask that same question in some other cultures, you get a response that says, oh, my gosh, no, I would never talk to the police because the police are corrupt. And the police Mm -hmm. don't have my best interest at heart. They don't have my friend's best interest at heart. I wouldn't speak to them or I would lie to them. And so when you're developing relationships with people, it's easy to assume that your mindset and your frame of reference is, you know, quote unquote, the right one. But you need to understand, of course, that people are coming into your relationship, your conversation, your work project. Mm -hmm with their own frame of reference, which Mm -hmm. they believe to be correct as well. So until you can kind of identify the differing frames of reference that people have and acknowledge them and find a way to work well together despite those, relationship building can be really difficult. That's right. I think a turning point for me was several years ago, my mother said to me, Mary, you have got to stop expecting people to react in a situation the same way that you do. And once I taking that on board, it was really great advice for managing my expectations because it's all true, right? We're all coming from our own perspective, not from the person next to us or in front of us. And once we accept that, it makes it a whole lot easier to bridge those gaps because we're coming with open hearts and open minds. Absolutely. Especially when you think of the fact that there are so many different layers of culture that people bring with them, you know, Mm -hmm. that not only is their region or their country, but there's also their family culture, the company Mm -hmm. culture that they came from, their religious culture, their food culture, their music culture. Everyone brings with them, you know, eight, nine, 10 different types of culture that can all have an impact on how you interact. And Mm -hmm. to me, it's one of the more challenging parts of the job, but it's also one of the more rewarding. I really I enjoy, I kind of geek out over learning about other people's cultures and frames of reference. It's something I find really rewarding about having a global role. I agree. And as someone who's lived on four continents now, I would have to say it is certainly a motivator for what has caused me to travel around the world and experience the different working and living styles of different cultures. Bravo. That's impressive. I've only lived on two. I got two more to go to get to you. And I usually say. (laughs) Mm -hmm. A Cornell University study found that men tend to overestimate their capability and performance, while women underestimate both. Another finding from a Hewlett-Packard internal report, which is fairly well known now, is that when men are looking for a new role, they will apply for a job even when they only meet 60% of the criteria listed, but women only tend to apply when they meet 100% of the qualifications. That's a startling difference. And this isn't something that men are doing to women. It's all about our own confidence and boldness. How can we coach ourselves into gaining better faith in our own abilities? This is such an important point. It's something I talk with you know, younger compliance professionals and younger attorneys all the time. I remember actually when I first kind of read about these studies, I think it was in Lean In, and I was appalled. I thought, what, why, why, why are women doing this to themselves? I think I'll give an example, a personal example of when this played out in my life and how I approached it. Not the current position that I have, but the position before this, 
was a role where they wanted someone who had ITAR experience. ITAR is the International Traffic and Arms Regulations, and it's Mm -hmm. a specific type of trade regulation that applies to people who are contracting for government goods that are defense goods. So think, you know, militarized vehicles or gun turrets or, you know, amphibious vehicles. I had no experience. I had zero. I had never worked for an ITAR manufacturer. I had no experience with the Department of Defense or with defense contracting. So that was a big hole in my experience background. Luckily, it wasn't the whole job. It was just a portion of the job. So when I applied for the job, I took the approach of being completely transparent and very direct and said, hey, I know you're looking for this. I have that. You're looking for this. I've got that in spades. You're looking for this. I'm going to be real direct with you here. I don't have that. I don't have any experience in that, but you know what I do have? I have the ability to learn and I have the ability to learn quickly. And here's some examples in my career of when I've had to learn things quickly and how I went about it. And then I listed, you know, this is something that I knew nothing about, but I took the project anyway, and here's how it turned out. And here's an area of law that I needed to know about. So I went and bought myself a book and I taught myself how to handle it. And by the time I was done, I was handling this for the company on a global basis. So I lauded to this employer, not my extensive background and knowledge, but my extensive ability to learn quickly and to reach a level of expertise that would benefit them. And luckily, I got the job, which was great. Um, And I was there for many years. But it was something I always recommend, especially to young women. If you see a role that's like the study says, you know, 60% of stuff you can do and the rest you can't, talk about the skill set that can get you there and how motivated you are to get there and the skills you offer that employer, even in the absence of the specific experience. That's really great advice. And I love that you gave a real example and you got the job. (laughs) Yes. Yes. (laughs) Wonderful. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Gwen, for joining us. Uh, You were super interesting as usual, even perhaps on not our most sexy compliance topic. (laughs) Interesting. Well, I'm glad to have been part of the podcast. Thank you for including me and keep up the good work. I love listening to these. Thank you. That was the Great Woman in Compliance podcast with guest Gwen Hassan, the co-hosts Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. Thank you so much for listening in. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.